are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. All right, how y'all doing? Good? Amen. Set this over here. Well, good evening. Welcome to our Sojourn Church gathering that we have together. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. It's good to be here with you tonight, this evening. Uh, reminds me of a friend of mine when we lived in Kansas that would go into Sudan. Whoa! That's a heavy book. I think I got it. So he would go into Sudan before there was Sudan and South Sudan. And he would go into these remote areas and he would, uh, speakers, uh, he would actually go in and just kind of preach the gospel but seek to encourage the church as well. So then they would go from miles around, travel to this area in Sudan where there's huge trees located. So you can imagine the, the amount of heat and sun away from this huge tree. But all these Sudanese believers that were part of the Sudanese church, where they come together for hours to worship and to learn from his word. So kind of tonight and other nights while we're outside, we're getting to experience a little bit of what some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do on a regular basis. So I hope that we can find joy in this, even though it's not our usual way of doing service. So just a quick introduction. We've been walking through the book of John over the past few <laughs> weeks and months with a desire to try to understand and know Jesus rightly so that we can follow him fully. And so here in John tonight, we find ourselves at the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now to read us, to get started, <clears throat> sorry, to read the story to get started, we're going to set a framework from the big picture story Bible. So partially this is to engage our younger crowd that's here with us tonight, but also this is an opportunity to look through the lens of a more simplified version of the text. So follow along as I read. I have been becoming quite adept to reading upside down with my kids. So I'll try not to stumble and maybe the kids can see the pictures. So a man named Lazarus was very sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, knew that he was dying. They wanted Jesus to come and heal Lazarus, so they sent for Jesus. Jesus loved his friends, but when he heard Lazarus was sick, he did a very surprising thing. He stayed where he was. He did not come right away. Jesus knew God was going to use him to do something amazing. Jesus was going to show God's power over death. So Jesus waited until Lazarus died, and then he went to be with his friends. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been in a tomb for four days. Martha met him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus replied, your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Martha said, yes. She believed that Jesus was God's king and son who was sent to bring life to the world. Then Mary came to see Jesus, and Jesus was, saw her crying. He went with Mary to the tomb, and then Jesus cried too. Some who were there saw Jesus and said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Good question. They did not know that Jesus was getting ready to show them that God had sent him to rescue people from sin and death. Jesus told them to open the tomb. Only then did Jesus step forward and pray, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Then, in a really loud voice, Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And do you know what happened? Any kid raise your hand? Do you know what happened? The big kids in the back do. All right. Just with Jesus' words, Lazarus came out. He was alive. A dead man was now alive again. Jesus showed the people that God's spirit had power to bring new life. Many people believed on Jesus that day. This is the word adapted to a younger audience. Praise the Lord. I thank him for it. Now let me pray for us before we get started in some explanation. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have not left us alone in that, Lord, and you also have given us your spirit for those who trust and follow you. Lord, we confess that our lives are often ordered around the daily, the weekly, monthly, and yearly activities around us. And we often lose picture and sight and perspective on who you really are and what you have come to do. And so I pray, Lord, this evening that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear from your word. I pray that whatever is preached out of my mouth and mind and heart would be honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, but would the people in the audience only remember that which is true and right and accurate and beneficial. Lord, I know it's hot, so I pray, Lord, that you would give us sustainment to stay engaged during this text. And Lord, I thank you for bringing even our children here that we can worship together and learn from your word together. So guide us and lead us by your spirit for our good, for the good of others, and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so... To open us up with a question, when we think about death, we don't want to die. We don't want others to die, and that is a good thing. But how much do we allow the desire not to die to actually control our lives or influence our everyday decisions and activities, how we spend our time, our money, and our energy? There is no question that with death, we experience pain, sadness, mourning, and loss. But, as we will see today, death is not the end. In this encounter, Jesus allows death to happen, but he also confronts it head on. Now, as a quick reminder, John's intent for his letter is stated at the very end of the letter, chapter 20, verse 21. He says, but these are written, these things in this letter are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's entire letter moves towards this result, a sharpening compass pointing to a continuously sharpened direction towards believing in Christ so that you may have life in his name. That's his point. Towards this purpose, John has so far described six specific miracles in his letter displaying Jesus' power over all things in life and creation. And now with this seventh miracle, Jesus displays his power and authority even over death. 
Now we enter the storyline of the seventh and last miracle where we're going to see three scenes. We're going to unpack those scenes first, and then we're going to circle back to talk about some application and implications of that for our life and for the world around us. And we begin this storyline with Jesus and his disciples having relocated to Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is outside of Israel and outside the reach of authority and the hostility of the Jewish authorities who were trying to seek to, to cause him harm and silence him because of his claim to be God. So that's where we find them as we begin. With scene one, verses one through 16, where John uproots the true issue going on. So an urgent message is sent to Jesus at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Lazarus is seriously ill and his sisters are concerned for his ability to recover. So they send to the one that they know can heal and restore Lazarus. He has proved it before. They don't have Tylenol, antibiotics, or modern medical science. They are looking to the one that they know can miraculous heal, miraculously heal their brother. Jesus then states the main purpose for the entire storyline that we're looking at tonight. He says in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Strangely enough, though, Lazarus dies. In fact, in our story's timeline at this point, when he receives the messenger, Lazarus is probably already dead. So what does Jesus mean? It seems contradictory. But as the story unfolds, we'll see how Lazarus' illness does not lead to death continuing for him at this point in time. And through this, Jesus is glorified, which in turn glorifies God. So now, how would you expect someone to respond that received a message like Jesus did? How does a parent respond to a young child who is hurt? How does an adult child respond to the failing health of their parents? They drop what they are doing and attend to that need, which is good. But Jesus responds very differently, which we have seen over and over again in this letter. So John states that Jesus loves Lazarus and his family. And it was obvious to others that Jesus loved Lazarus and loved his family with a brotherly love, a, an affectionate love, which is one word that is used in the Greek in this particular passage. However, with a deeper awareness, the author, John, also describes Jesus as loving Lazarus with an agape love or a sacrificial love. Because of this type of love, Jesus is thinking bigger than the immediate pain point of Lazarus and his family. And in fact, for the good of the people and the glory of God, listen to this, it was God's will for Lazarus to die and for his sisters to suffer. Let me repeat that again. It was God's will for Lazarus to die and for his sisters to suffer. Now that's hard to hear, very hard to hear. And it's very hard to even think about and receive that information or that idea. It's not something that I would want to happen, nor would I choose to anybody else for that to happen. But God allows it for their good and his glory. And therefore, Jesus delayed an extra two days so that there would be no question that Lazarus is definitely and without question dead. And that his resurrection is therefore truly a miracle. So after this two-day delay, Jesus states to his disciples that now the time is right to return to Judea. But they resist. Why would they resist? So what we see in the text is it's very risky for them to actually return to Jerusalem because of the hostility of the Jews toward Jesus. 
So they have alternate reasonable ideas that come to mind. So they shouldn't leave the fruitful ministry where they're at. They're on the other side or the outside of, the, of Israel. Lazarus will recover on his own because Jesus said so. Jesus could heal from a distance. He has actually demonstrated that already. And if Lazarus is just asleep, I mean, he'll wake up on his own. So why go into this risk? So they have a, a problem-solver efficiency mindset as they're looking at this situation. How to accomplish the goal with the least risk or cost. Honestly, it sounds like a lot of us and sounds like me as well. Even when we use things like Google Maps or Waze, we're trying to get there as quickly, efficiently, without less risk and cost as possible. But the disciples are missing the big picture, and they get the problem and the destination wrong. They're wrapped around Lazarus' healing, all the while missing the unbelief in their own hearts, in the hearts of other Christ followers, and in the hearts of the Jewish population as a whole. And belief is the critical pivot point emphasized over and over again in this story. And we'll get into that and what that means in just a little bit. So Jesus first encourages them, and then he corrects them. In verses 9 and 10, he states to them, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, just as a typical day in their agrarian culture had a number of hours of daylight in which work could be done, he had set an amount of time in which to accomplish the deeds given to him by his father. So walking neither in safety, perceived safety, I should say, or perceived risk will change the duration of our days for the Lord. Then he states the root problem, unbelief. And the solution for that problem in the sake of the disciples is to go to Lazarus. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So they travel with Jesus, understanding the obligation in their culture as it relates to death, understanding the risk in going, still naive about the real purpose of what Jesus is accomplishing, but willing to go to their probable deaths to follow him. And that brings us then into scene two, verses 17 through 37, where Jesus finds hopelessness in Bethany. As scene two unfolds, we see Jesus nearing Bethany. And first he's received by Martha, and then Mary, and then a large group of Jewish people that have come to be with the sisters. Let's take a quick parenthesis into the Jewish mourning process over death because it's unfamiliar to us and how we process mourning. So visiting and consoling the bereaved for the seven days immediately following a close relative's loss was an essential duty of Jewish piety. And it is actually still practiced today. It's called Shiva. Many of the Jews actually would stay the entire seven days, sitting with mourning in silence with the people that have lost the loved one. In Lazarus's case, actually many Jewish people have come from the Jerusalem area. And so all of this is rolled together, setting the stage to expose multitudes of people to Jesus's seventh miracle. Now back to the story. So as Jesus approaches Bethany again, first he encounters Martha, she neglects the normal Jewish pattern of Shiva to rise and leave her home away from her comforters to go meet Jesus. Subsequently, Mary is called by Jesus to join him and leaves her home to go. Though it wasn't really intended by Martha because she was speaking in private to Mary, the Jews assume she's going to see Lazarus and so they follow Mary to where she is going. 
So in all three of these encounters, their limited belief in and trust in Jesus is evident through their questions about his involvement or lack thereof. Now regarding Martha and Mary, we see them say very similar statements. In verse 21 and 22, Mary said, or Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Later, Mary says something similar, and then Martha here continues, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, don't we often respond in the same way? God, I know you can or could have done something, but why didn't you? Why didn't you come sooner? Martha and Mary know that he loved Lazarus, but now that Lazarus is dead, nothing can be done for him in their perspective. From their awareness, Jesus' power and authority actually end at Lazarus' death. Still, Martha states that through Jesus, some good will come from this, which shows great faith and trust in him. Now, transitioning to observing the Jews, they saw Jesus weeping. And so they said in verses 36 and 37, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Some of them see Jesus weeping and can tell it is an overflow of his love for Lazarus, but he cannot do anything about it now. They think Jesus is grieving for the same reason that they are, without hope because of the finality of death. Some of the observing Jews questioned if Jesus really did love Lazarus because even though he has demonstrated healing, Jesus chose not to heal him. In other words, if he really cared about Lazarus and his family, wouldn't he have healed Lazarus? Again, we can and often do respond to God in very similar ways as we see here. But how does Jesus respond to their responses to him? With Martha, Jesus consoles her, but also opens the curtain a little by challenging her belief. Jesus blatantly states to her that your brother will rise again, or he will resurrect. Yet the thought of Jesus being able to bring physical life again now, at the moment in time, is not even within her imagination. For her, resurrection is an abstract truth that will come at some point, in some way, in the far future, at the end of days. However, Jesus refocuses Martha from the resurrection being an event to the resurrection being a person. So in verses 25 and 26, we see some amazing proclamations of Christ. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now in this statement, he uses the proper noun used only for God in the Bible to describe himself. The ego I me, which is I am. You see that when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush. This is what got him in trouble in Jerusalem. He claims qualities here that are in God alone. I am the resurrection, the one who raises from death. I am the life, or Zoe, the one who has the vitality and true, full life. In other words, I am God, and these qualities are embodied in me, and by implication, in me alone. R.C. Sproul describes his declaration this way. He says, I hold the keys of life and death. I am the foundation, the power of life itself, and I have the power to raise dead people from the grave. I don't just teach the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the very power of God unto life. 
So what do we do with all these I's and these me's? Well, belief is the key pivot word regarding man's necessary response. Now, in our culture, it's a little different than what we read in the Greek. So in our culture, belief in general means an intellectual understanding, comprehension, or assent. We're thinking with our minds, and therefore, that's what we believe. In the Greek culture and in the Greek language, however, in contrast, the language is tied to a relationship that changes a person's life. A relationship on which you and I cast our absolute confidence, trust, surrender, and heartfelt obedience. Jesus is saying, it's me that you must cast your belief on. Jesus states then that those who do believe in him, though they physically die, they shall not die eternally, but be raised to new life. So Martha then confessed this belief, still not necessarily grasping what Jesus could or would do now, but this sets up the gravity of what he's about to do. And I'd ask you to consider kind of where you fit in this paradigm. Some believe who he claims to be and understand what that means, at least partially, just like some here in the audience who claim to know Christ. They follow him with their lives, not perfectly, obviously. We do make mistakes. He is the perfect one, but our hearts are set on following him. Others know what he has claimed, but are skeptical about it. And then others know what he has claimed, but actually reject him. So what he has claimed is not in question. As C.S. Lewis has said, he is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Those are the only options. But this miracle attempt will then either confirm or deny his claims. So now we shift from Jesus receiving Martha to Mary in the Jewish crowd. And in verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This meaning is somewhat lost in our English translation. These words in Greek reveal Jesus' indignation and agitation. That so many are grieving without any hope at the finality of death. In fact, his own people had mostly so far rejected their only hope, which was in him alone. He is indignant and agitated at the effects of sin and death on those that he has created and loved. And make no mistake about it. Hear me clearly. With this indignation in his soul and agape love overflowing out of his heart, he is about to pick a fight. He is going to pick a fight to throw down with the covert character in this story. Death and the devil. Bursting the chains of their supposable power and authority and finality and revealing his greatness to an unsuspecting, hopeless crowd, revealing without question their singular, true, and personal source of hope, which is him alone. Now that brings us to the third scene in verses 38 through 45, unmistakable glory. So the family and the Jews led Jesus to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried for four days and Jesus' indignation continues to grow. Martha and others still don't understand his intention or his power. Maybe he wants to see Lazarus in the tomb because he was not able to see him at his death. But Jesus gently and personally challenges and corrects Martha, bringing up his earlier statement about his identity and his question of her belief. 
In verse 40, he says to her again, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In other words, Martha, did I not tell you that if or since you believe that I am the resurrection and life, you will now see a physical demonstration of this spiritual reality? And in you and many others believing in me, it will glorify me as the Son of God and glorify God altogether. So first, those that are present, so that they do understand that he was indeed sent by the Father, he prays out loud for all to hear, highlighting the Father and the Son are now and have always been in concert, perfect harmony in their person, work, and purpose. And then Jesus commands. We don't often encounter commands in our culture around here, but Jesus commands. He doesn't ask, he doesn't conjure, and he doesn't beg, but simply and powerfully with his words, he commands in a loud voice so that there is no question. Lazarus, come out! Not just physically from the tomb, but out of death and back to life. Where else do we see words having this power. It is in Genesis in creation. So we see even in this reflection of Jesus' nature as God. And Lazarus now physically rising from the tomb. So Jesus commands death to flee, and it obeys. It must obey. Jesus commands life to be restored, and it must obey. And out walks Lazarus in front of all the witnesses, an undeniable physical and visible demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus and his oneness with the Father. Much like Justin mentioned last week, Jesus has the authority to do anything and everything that he says he will do. Anything. Now, to help us paint the canvas in our imagination, R.C. Sproul describes it this way. And I think he, he helps put color on what may be black and white as we look at it here. His divine word of command echoed to the depths of Lazarus's tomb, penetrated the grave clothes, and brought life where there was death. The moment the voice of Christ called on Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus's heart began to beat again. Nerve impulses began to race throughout his body, and his rotting, putrefying flesh became whole and healed. Then Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb with the grave clothes hanging from his body. He was alive again. So now what does this mean? Death is man's great and certain enemy until that day. Yes, Lazarus did in fact die, but only temporarily because as Jesus demonstrated for all the witnesses to see, he has power over death and life. This miracle, though, also points to a greater resurrection, a categorically different resurrection. It's a precursor of Jesus conquering death finally and completely by his own death on the cross, his own resurrection to life, and his own ascension into heaven. And Jesus' death on the cross pays our individual debt of death because of sin fully and completely, bringing resurrection life to all people who believe on him throughout all of history. Can I get an amen? Anybody out there? Louder amen? Amen. 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 Death has now lost its power. 
it still causes pain and suffering now. And many of us know that so well, some greater than others. But this dog has a chain. One day for those who believe on Jesus now, death will be fully and completely swallowed up. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. When the perishable, which is our physical bodies now subject to death, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, in this storyline, was God glorified through the glorification of the Son? Did what was promised by Jesus actually happen? I think this is a resounding yes. And through his victory over death, God is still being glorified as multitudes continue believing on him throughout history, past, present, and future. So now what do we do with this? We're going to transition from kind of walking through the storyline and developing a little bit to try to understand, now what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? And what does this mean for our world? The fact that Jesus has power over death and life and that those who believe in him will be raised to new life honestly has like a myriad of applications. But if we boil down to the root from which all other applications grow, I think there's really just three primary root implications of this text for our lives now. Number one, our greatest need as Christians is a growing belief in God. That is our greatest need, a growing relationship. So belief as described in the Greek culture, in the Greek language, which we looked at a little bit, not just an intellectual ascent, a growing relationship in which we more fully cast our absolute confidence, trust, surrender, and heartfelt obedience onto Christ. Growing in the knowledge and love of God through his word and prayer so that our belief is strengthened and matured so that we can follow where he leads with faith and courage. Paul put it this way in Philippians, and it is my prayer, Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that your love may abound more and more with real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So this looks like time alone with your Bible and on your knees. So our greatest need is not straight A's in school. All right, parents, close your ears for that one. Kids, you can cheer if you want. Um, it's not a perfectly ordered home, though it can be very frustrating when it is not perfectly ordered. It is not a career of impact and influence. It is not prominence or influence in social media. It's not fashionable new clothes. It's not rest, recuperation, naps, silence, stillness, being as physically fit as possible, not perfect health. It is not removal of pain, suffering, difficulty, or illness. And it is not to get more money, to buy more things, to go back to work, to get more money, to buy more things, to go back to work, to get more money, to buy more things, and on and on and on. Don't get me wrong. 
these things can and many of them are good things, but they are not ultimate things or root things. If you have organized or structured your life around priorities like these and crowded out your relationship with God, you have forgotten your greatest need, just like I would have, and sometimes, quite honestly, do. And what we need to do in that situation is make a change. This is your responsibility. God won't do it for you, but he will use circumstances to draw you and meet you right where you are and lead you in the way as you yield to him. So just simply begin before him daily and consistently and follow then where he leads. Melanie and I spent some time with a family from Sojourn uh, about a week and a half ago, I think, and they have a busy life with work, very busy life with homeschool, and a lot of kids involved in that process. So they're busy people. And yet this couple both said every morning, 6 to 7 a.m., we're individually in the Word, seeking to better know and love and follow God so that then we can better lead our families, then we can better engage with our coworkers, then we can try to bring Christ's glory through every aspect of our lives. I mean, amen, like that's the kind of life that I want to lead, and I think and I hope the kind of life that you all want to lead as Christ's followers. And that is our greatest need. Number two, similarly, the greatest need of non-Christians is to believe on Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. In some ways, we think, well, obviously, right? But how does this reality actually affect our lives? Parents, listen to me for just a second. Parents, do you know that your child's greatest need is not to be perfectly behaved, to be clean, well-fed, and rested? So these are, again, these are good things. To have the best grades at the best schools, to become great in sports or clubs, to get into the right college, and honestly, it's not even to have the best relationship with you as their parents. Your coworkers' greatest need is not their paycheck. Your roommate's greatest need is not for you to keep your dirty dishes out of the sink and get them washed and put back in the cabinet. Your, your excuse me, yeah, your friend's greatest need is not gaming domination as part of your team. Those who are suffering unjustly or under an oppressive government or in poverty, their greatest need is not alleviation of these things, though it is good. Again, all these things can be good, and honestly, we should pursue these things as an overflow of the love that God has put in our heart. And we've learned about that as we've looked through John or other passages. As that overflow, we engage the lost and broken world around us. But again, they are not the ultimate things for those who do not know, love, trust, and follow Christ. So be careful how you align your time, your energy, and your priorities in this life in order to influence and impact those around us with the gospel. And now third, what do we get when we combine deep-rooted Christians maturing in their belief on Jesus through his word, prayer, community, and obedience, and non-Christians in the world who have a gaping, God-sized hole in their lives? What do we get? It may not be obvious. We get opportunity for risk. 
as we who know Christ follow Jesus into the fragmented, broken, hopeless, and dangerous world in which we live, much like the decision the disciples had to make to follow Christ. So again, Paul puts it this way in Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that's an overflow of the fruit of of the Spirit in your life. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And what Paul's talking about holding fast, it's not just clinging to it with all your ability, though that is true. It is holding it fast, out and upright for all to see and hear. And in so doing that, our belief is more fully matured and God is more glorified by more placing their belief on Jesus. In other words, in other words, let me summarize this particular application in this way. What we just read about in John 11, other than the fact we can't raise anybody from the dead, we get to participate in God being glorified through resurrecting people spiritually now to be physically resurrected in heaven with us when he returns. Is that exciting? Another, yeah, there we go, there we go. Amen. So we get to tell, even in the midst of that, an infinitely greater resurrection and greater inheritance than Lazarus did. I mean, could you imagine his testimony? Like, let me tell you what God did for me. I'm alive. And in the very beginning of this encounter, John tells us exactly that person that was raised to life. It was Lazarus. It was the brother of Mary and Martha. It was the the Mary that scrubbed and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Like, there's no question that as Lazarus walks around, these people who see him know who this person is. It's specific. And that's an awesome testimony. We could tell a greater testimony this side of Jesus' resurrection. Our belief on Jesus and hope that this brings allows us then to be able to take this risk. Daily, small risks, possibly in simple conversations. But even in those, you know that anxiety that grows in your heart when you're approaching the opportunity to share the gospel with people around you that do not yet know Christ. And I remember having my first job out of college, sitting at the desk as a lowly engineer, not knowing what in the world am I here for, and just praying before God and saying, what do you want me to do? He's like, yes, I want you to do good work. Yes, I want you to work for the service of others, for the economic benefit of others, for the practical needs of others. But I've also placed you here specifically for all these people around you that you see that have no witness of me. And so engage with those people with my gospel. So in those daily small risks in those conversations, also in big life direction risks, how many in this world have never heard about Jesus and have no one to tell them about it. No one. And we know that at least some of these people in these parts of the world that have no one to tell them, there's a reason they have no one to tell them. Because they'll probably be hostile to the message of the gospel, displacing their current gods, beliefs, values, and possibly even their authority. And where else do we see that example? Right in the New Testament right with the Pharisees, Jewish leaders, and Jesus. We're going to expose and get into that a little bit farther in later weeks. Listen, our days are numbered. They are short as a breath seen on a clear and cold winter morning. However, 
our short breath of life is never, never out of the sovereignty of our God. I wanted to close. Did I say close already? Okay, maybe I can close again. I don't know, you guys, it's like the ending of The Lord of the Rings, right? You think it's over and you're like, oh, I can't take anymore. And then wait, it comes back and you're like, I can't take anymore. All right, so you can just stand up and walk away with, if you get to that point. So, um, so this is a book that we read in our family from time to time. It's, it's Hero Tales. It's about different missionaries that engage in different parts of the world. Um, so this is about a guy named Menno Simon. He's a reformer from the 1500s in the Netherlands. And this kind of illustrates the fact that sometimes you pursue risk in these decisions, but other times the risk and issue and, and hostility actually find you. So the city mayors and other government officials of the Netherlands were upset. They were unable to stop the underground Anabaptist churches from growing. One letter from the city of Lewarden to Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire complained, we could have stamped out the Anabaptists if it weren't for a former priest, Menno Simons, who is one of the main leaders in this area. He goes everywhere making new followers of Jesus. The officials, therefore, in response, arrested and tortured many Anabaptists in order to destroy the new church. If the people cooperated with the officials by denying or rejecting their faith and giving out the names of other Anabaptists, they were executed quickly and mercifully by having, I won't go into that, quickly and mercifully they were executed. If they would not deny their faith and refuse to tell the names of any other Anabaptists, they suffered the slower, more painful death of what he says in this story. But no matter how cruel the government was, the underground church continued to grow. So how could they do this? How could they live this way, believing on Christ and making him known to face their own death in this way? It is because they believed on their resurrected Lord and they knew that whoever lives and believes in him shall never die. John Piper describes it this way. When you know the truth about what happens to you after you die and you believe it and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed. Free from the short shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin, and free for the sacrifices stemming from delight of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters at Sojourn Church, let's live this same way with the same great need, encouraging one another in that and with the same pursuit of risk for the sake of Jesus' name. And let's do that all together. Now next week we're going to continue in our study of John and begin to see how in Jesus raising Lazarus to life, he has paved the way for his own death. Make sure you join us so that you can continue to seek to see Jesus rightly and therefore to be able to follow him fully. Now let's pray together, and I promise this is the closing. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, in you there is life. 
in you there has always been life, and now you bring that life to us and that awareness to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. And you invite us then into knowing you, believing you, having this relationship with you, and being servants through which you bring continued and growing glory to your name as many others, myriads of others, come to know you as Lord and Savior of their lives. So we thank you that you've done that here with us. And I pray, Lord, for each of us, Lord, myself included in this, that you would well up in us your Holy Spirit that would overflow in a desire to long and love and follow you and a desire to meet the greatest need of those around us, which is to hear the gospel. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news, knowing that whatever that path is for us to follow, you are fully and sovereignly over all of it, caring for us and comforting us in our need and walking us through the short breath of life. Lord, may it be said of our lives, they love Jesus and they made you known. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.